listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. You know, at times you hear various reports and warnings about silent killers, and sometimes these silent killers are, affect our health, and, and there are various silent killers when it comes to our health, things like fatty liver or diabetes or, you know, um, skin cancer, colon cancer, high blood pressure, and, and you just do a search on the internet for silent killers, and, and it doesn't take long to come up with a whole list of these kind of silent health killers. And then there's silent killers in the home, uh, various dangers lurking within our home, whether it's carbon monoxide gas or gas leaks or mold or asbestos or radon gas or hidden fire hazard or various chemicals or different things. And, 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 and as I was looking at this a little bit online this week, I, I, I found there's a solution maybe to some of the stuff going on in your home. It might be this. Uh, could you imagine going around in uh, your homes enjoying those kind of masks? But sometimes these silent killers, they're lurking. And so we've got to be prepared. We've got to be ready. And and yet today we're not talking about silent health killers. We're not going to talk about silent killers in the home or any other place for that matter. We're going to talk about silent killers, that, uh, a silent killer of the soul. Something that is far more dangerous than anything that we've talked to, that, that we could list here on the screen. And the silent killer we're talking about today, the silent killer we're going to zero in on is that of pride. It is a silent killer of the soul. It is the snuffer out of life, spiritual life. And even leaving to physical death as well. I'm talking about pride. C.S. Lewis, he called it the great sin. It was the sin that led Satan to the fall. It is the sin that led the fall of humanity as well. And, and he went on to say this, uh, in this quote, There is a vice of which no man in this world is free, which everyone loathes when they see it in others, but hardly could we ever imagine that we are guilty of ourselves. And pride, it's so easy to pick out and be able to see in the lives of others and at times just like, yeah, makes me sick. Can't stand it when see that pride in that person. You see how arrogant they are? Just flaunting themselves or whatever it might be. Isn't it so true? We can easily see it in others. We loathe it, we hate it. And yet in ourselves, we don't see it. John Ed, Jonathan Edwards, an old preacher, he said, Pride is the main door by which the devil comes to the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. Pride is one of the, the, the main enemies, one of the things that is going to come after God's servants. And over the years, there have been many of God's servants over the years, centuries, decades, uh, who have fallen because of areas of pride. And sin is the... Uh, the sin of pride is one of the greatest and most dangerous sins. This silent killer can be welling up in your soul. All the while, our actions and, and, and our words and everything we're doing may sound so biblical and so humble, and yet our hearts can be welling up with this pride. God's word has so much to say about pride. You may want to either snap a picture or be able to write down these references when it comes to areas of pride. I encourage you to read them this week. Here's just a few of them. We see in the word of God that God not only just doesn't dislike pride, he hates pride. He hates it with a passion and we'll see this in his word. Proverbs 8:13 says, pride and arrogance are the way of evil and perverted speech. I hate it. God says, Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low. 
Psalm 6, or Proverbs 6, 16 to 17, we're just going to look at the first part because that's where we just can even stop at this point in these verses. But it says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And what's the first thing? Haughty eyes. What does that mean? Some translations will say a proud look. You know that look in a person's eyes? You've seen it. You've seen it in people's eyes before and they just have that certain kind of look and you just think under your breath, they are so cocky. They are so full of themselves. They are so proud. They are so arrogant. See, God not only sees the eyes, the haughty eyes, he sees the heart and he knows what's really going on. And then a humbling verse in James 4, 16, God opposes the proud. But then a great part to that verse, but gives grace to the humble. When we are proud, God, the God of this universe, fights against us. When we are humble, the God of this universe gives us grace upon grace upon grace. Now, there are many laws that govern our universe. There are um, mathematical laws um, that 2 plus 2 equals... Five? Yeah, that's maybe the new math, but old math and the laws of the universe say two plus two equals four. Right, you got it. You know, and, and those are laws that really should not be up, up to change. And uh, there's the law of gravity. What goes up comes down. And there's a lot of terrible laws in physics that I could never get quite figured out in my school career that lasted very long when it came, uh, lasted not very long when it came to physics. But then there's also the laws of supply and demand. There's the law of the harvest that you reap what you yeah, there's all of these different universal laws. And here's one that, uh, that, that uh, Pastor James McDonald wrote about a number of years ago. And, and I think it's so fitting for today. Pride plus time equals judgment. This is a universal law of the universe. And how do we get it? Where do we find it? What scientific book do we find it in? We find it in the word of God. We've already read verses pertaining to this, and even Proverbs 15.5 even backs that up sol solidly. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Pride plus time equals judgment. And oh, we need to be thankful for the grace of time that God gives to the proud. Because as we're going to see, this is a struggle that we will all face. It is a struggle that we're facing until the day we die. And we're so thankful that God brings, gives us uh, his patient time for us to be able to deal with this pride. And we can heed the warnings in God's word about this silent killer and allow God's word to convict us and teach us. Oh, may it be something that would, would even restore us today and, and, and put us on a, the path of humility, which is the only response to the problem, the sin of pride. And so today in our study in Daniel, we're going to see a man who was so proud, so arrogant, so full of himself. He would have had the haughty eyes he would have been doing all kinds of, if it was modern day technology, he would be doing all kinds of selfies in front of all of the great structures and all of his great accomplishments and look at this view from my palace and, and, and he would have just been posting it all over the place and putting it on Twitter and Instagram and look at me. 
Oh, he was a cocky, arrogant guy, I'm telling you. I mean, and you even see it here in, in chapter 4. In one of the verses, it says, these are his words. Is this not the great Babylon which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for all and, and, and for the glory of my majesty? This guy tore apart kingdoms, ripped families, ravaged families apart from one another, had people killed at his just decree that it, whatever he wanted, he turned people into slaves and to servants to build up his greatness and his majesty. Successful? You better believe it. He was one of the most successful kings of all of history, and we'll get into that in a little bit. And yet we see a man who's humbled, a man who meets God. But we must recognize once again, folks, there is a bit of Nebuchadnezzar in each one of us. The battle that he faced in steroid-like proportions is in each one of us. We must recognize this. This is a battle that not only he faced, but it's a battle that we face day after day. And in Daniel chapter 4, though, this is an amazing story. This is a good news story. The miraculous happens. Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. And as I was reading and studying and different commentators and Bible scholars across the board would solemnly believe that more than likely that it is just a huge chance that Nebuchadnezzar's in heaven and that if you are going there, if you are a child of God, you'll be able to meet this king one day and be able to hear from himself what God, the great lengths that God went to, God's great patience, God's great love towards him to see this man deal with his pride and oh, would we say that God has done even greater things, greater lengths to reach down to us, to, to us and to allow us the opportunity to experience his great and incredible grace. Nebuchadnezzar, he gets saved. He, we see this proud man turning into a humble man who at the end of his life, the end of his, end of his reign, is praising and giving glory to God. And so chapter 4 is amazing. It's a personal testimony. Don't you love personal testimonies? Remember that folder I showed you last week of all the baptism, my nice little accounting folder of all the different names of folks that have been able to baptize over the years? Well, one of the things why that folder is, is rather thick is because there are a lot of testimonies in there. Sometimes I've kept a copy of the person's testimony. They left it behind or I just wanted it for my own file's sake. And, 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 and I love these testimonies. And, and so many of us, our lives have been touched and encouraged by a testimony. Well, Daniel chapter 4 is basically, it is, it is Daniel rendition or Daniel allowing these truths to be put into the word of God here. Well, the Holy Spirit's allowing it, but we see a personal testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar and how he's come to know and love and worship and glorify and want to tell the entire universe about the one true God who went to great lengths to save him. So let's take a look at his testimony here, starting in chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. What a way to start a testimony. He starts the testimony out with a declaration of praise. He just wants to start out, I want to thank God for all that he's done, and what a change of heart we've seen. He has found peace 
Look at what he says. Oh, may peace be multiplied. You can just see just the joy and the enthusiasm of a changed heart. And, and now he's saying, and now peace be multiplied to you, to all the ones who hear this and hear my testimony. Oh, may, may God's peace just rest in your soul. Here he had everything in the world. The most powerful monarch and he had no peace. Instead, he had insanity. He had everything that money could buy, anything he wanted, and yet no capacity to enjoy it truly because he did not have peace in his heart. In other chapters previous to this, we see him professing the greatness of God, but now something has changed. He's possessing an understanding and a relationship with God before he was saying all the right things about the one true God, but now something has changed. He has come to know this God. He's found him. And you see, at the end here of this story, we see that God wins. And when God wins in our lives, when God wins in areas of obedience, there's peace, there's victory, there's joy. Do you have his peace today? Do you have his peace in your life? Do you know this? Peace that passeth all understanding. This is one of the gifts that God gives to his children. He gives us peace. King Nebuchadnezzar, though, as we get into it, he did not have peace. He had, it, had everything, but he did not have peace. And so the next thing he tells us how this great story came about. He tells us what took place in verse 4. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. For clarity's sake, just so you know, I know we're flipping from chapter 3 now to chapter 4. Last week, chapter 3. This week, chapter 4. Maybe you even have to turn one page over in your Bible or just do a nice little touch and it, it, it went to the next screen on, on your tablet, however that may work for you. Um, but more than likely, 25 to 30 years have taken place. There's been a gap of 25 to 30 years in, since the fiery furnace incident. And so Daniel was probably at the age of 40, uh, late 40s, early 50s, it is believed during this time. And so back to the story, here's the king prospering in his palace, king of the world, he has no rivals, verse 5. But next, I, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in and I told them the dream, but they could not make it known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God. And in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? And I told him the dream saying, Oh, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The vision of my head as I lay in bed was these, were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and, and its top reached to the heavens. And it reached and, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the fields found shade under it and the birds of the heavens filled it in its branches. And all the flesh was fed from it. 
In ancient times, so you know, trees were often used to symbolize kings and their kingdoms. We see this in Ezekiel 17 and Ezekiel 31 as well as in the book of Amos. So far, so good. This is a good dream, isn't it? He didn't get to the end yet. You know, I mean, have you ever had a dream like that? You know, where, where you're dreaming and then all of a sudden you wake up and it's just like, oh, that was an awesome dream. I really like that. And, and then it's like, oh, maybe if I get back to sleep, I can get to chapter two of that dream. Have you ever had that? Or is it just me? Any of you? Admit okay, a few of you. Okay, cool. Anyways, I mean, so far, so good. You know, like he's having this dream of, of his kingdom and, and, and the bird, you know, it's feeding it. Like, it's just, it's really pretty good. It's like, yep, that's about right. My kingdom extends. Everyone can see it. Yep, great dream so far. Loving this. Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven. This is a reference to an angel, like a guardian, uh, one that is holy. Verse 14, he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and, and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King, Belt King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make it known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the Spirit of God, of the holy gods, is in you. So here we have Daniel. Kind of the last resort. Daniel has been living his life, living faithful to God in the midst of a very pagan environment. He's been living out his faith in God and, 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 and he's been doing this for 25, 30 years. And it, isn't it interesting that as when push comes to shove, when the rubber hits the road for the king, he turns to Daniel. He turns to the one true God. And he says, you're different than the other enchanters and magicians and the wise men. And he even says, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. He identifies this. He sees this. He sees that there's something different. This pagan king saw the difference in Daniel's life and his faith. No doubt, over the 25, 30 years, the king mocked and ridiculed along with the other enchanters and wise men. Oh, there's Daniel doing his God thing. Super spiritual Daniel. You know, God of the heavens. And, you know, and, and yet Daniel kept his witness. He kept this before the king, before others. And you know what? Some of you are in a position like that right now. You are desiring to remain and stay faithful in a very difficult environment. And it seems all you get is ignored. No one's interested. Mocked, ridiculed even, made fun of for your faith in Jesus Christ. And you might even be thinking, what's the point? Why even speak for the Lord? Why even share the gospel? Why even do this? Folks, stay faithful. Daniel stayed faithful. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of the word. He's a man who trusted God. 
He set forth this godly example so that when the king knew that his last resort, he, he knew that there was Daniel who would help him in that situation. And folks, people are watching. Even though they're ignoring, ridiculing, even mocking and making fun of you, even to others, keep your faith. Stay true to God. Live a life of no compromise. And when trouble comes, when real trouble comes, you'll be there, ready with open arms. And this is what we see here about Daniel. We see a heart of compassion, a readiness to be able to, to come alongside the king. 25, 30 years he's waited for an opportunity like this. I'm sure glad that he remained faithful, aren't you? Nebuchadnezzar, I no doubt, was very glad that he remained faithful. Verse 19, it says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Again, I mean, he, here... Daniel gets the interpretation. He knows exactly that this dream is not a good thing for the king. And yet we see compassion and concern. He's like, oh, king, this is bad news. This isn't good. I wish I could, I wish I could tell you what's going to happen. It's going to happen not to you, but to your enemies. He has to tell them the truth. And yet, his compassion doesn't get away from the conviction of being able to speak the truth to him in love. Would that be true for us as well? Our compassion for people? The gospel is good news. When you receive the gospel, it's good news, but rejection of the gospel is not good news. It's devastating news. It's God's wrath. It's hell. It's fire. It's judgment. Forever, and last time I checked, forever is a very, very long time. And yet with compassion, he still shares these convictions. He speaks the truth. We are called in Ephesians 4 to speak the truth to one another in love. And even when we're confronting a lost person or a proud person, we are to speak the truth in love, not just wanting to be the Mr. Nice Guy. We also have to share the truth. Be people of conviction, people of truth. Oh, the king's not going to like it. Do you ever like being confronted with the truth? Not initially. Hopefully we can learn from it. I've had some painful experiences of people speaking the truth to me in various areas of my life. And even still when it happens, I don't like it. My inner lawyer comes out. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? What about you? You know, and we can flip the conversation around and top that. So evil. But Daniel speaks the truth and he does so in love. I pray that we would be people of compassion, yet speaking with conviction the truth of God's word to those around us. Look at in verse 22, Daniel then tells him, It is you, O king. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the ends of the earth. He's telling this dream, this, this, this dream, it isn't good and it's, it, it's, it's going to be about you. Yet your greatness has grown and all that. But O king, verse 24, he says, this is the interpretation. 
It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven, 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 driven from, from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you for a time that you know that heaven rules. God was going to show Nebuchadnezzar that his very kingdom was God's kingdom. That God can make kingdoms rise and God can make kingdoms fall. It is God that establishes. It is God that tears down. True then, true today. And how important it is that we learn some valuable lessons here. Verse 27 says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sin by practicing righteousness and your iniquities, showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. He said, oh king, this is terrible news, but hey, if you repent, if you break with sin and, 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 and enter into a right relationship with God and, 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 and then by your actions prove and, and, and show the people whose backs have built your kingdom, give back to them, give back to the poor, do good. And perhaps this terrible thing will be delayed or averted altogether. Yet King Nebuchadnezzar, he hears this interpretation, he hears this, and he's still too arrogant to receive the counsel. He's like, oh, okay. Thanks, Daniel. You, go, you can go back and eat your veggies now. You know, like, just leave. Thanks. It is at this point when he's been confronted with the truth that his pride no doubt hits warp speed at this point. And it's the same in our own lives too when we are confronted with the truth of God's word and we ignore it. We think, oh, it doesn't pertain to me. It's not a big deal. When we are outrightly confronted with truth, we ignore it. You know what we're doing right there? Our pride is just rising to new heights because now we're setting ourselves up against the holy God of this world. We're saying, I know better than you. I know what your word says. You said to, could say to Daniel, I know that the holy one is in you. I know these are good words that you're speaking and yeah, I don't need it. How proud. And yet, isn't that how the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar is also in us? We hear God's word, we see God's word, we hear it proclaimed and yet we ignore it. <laughs> I'll put it off, not a big deal. I can somehow kind of circumvent. I kind of have a pass with God. You know, maybe we, we, we use excuses like that. However, you know, we have an understanding, God and I. And his word hasn't changed and it's not going to change. We read in Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3, the great warning today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like Israel did in the rebellion. They hardened their hearts towards God and what did we end up seeing? See them destroyed as a nation. It's a proud and idolatrous heart that says, not today, I know better, not today. And we say that to the almighty God. You see, you can't win with sin. You can't, eventually, sin, sin spreads, sin, sin pops out. It'll happen eventually. You can't win with sin. Verse 29, at the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. 
probably had his latest smartphone with him and doing a Facebook Live video at the time or a nice little Instagram post, you know, and, and it's like, look at this kingdom. Look at this view from my palace, the great Babylon. And it was great. Is not this the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a mighty residence and for the glory of my majesty? Wow. Babylon was incredible. It's estimated the population is the largest city in the world. It was the capital city of the world. 1.2 million people had strong fortified walls, two sets of walls wide enough for them to race chariots alongside of each other. 53 temples to every pagan god imaginable because he just want to keep his options open, you know. And so, you know, kind of pease the gods, 53 various temples. He had three palaces there that, you know, oh, I think I'll stay on the east side. I'll stay on the west side. I'll stay at the main palace, you know. I, I mean, he had all of this. Nebuchadnezzar was the one who constructed one of the seven wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. His wife was from the mountains. He, he married a BC girl and he lived on the prairies. He lived out on the plains and, and, and you know, she was missing the mountains and so, oh, I'll build you a mountain, dear. So in the middle of the city, he builds a mountain. Estimates are it was anywhere from three to 400 feet high. And, and, and using a water, a elaborate watering system from the Euphrates River, he brought in this fresh, cool water that was able to go up to the mountain and, and bring, and, and bring the, the cool water down and water the vegetation and, and, and tropical trees, and, and, and it could be seen for miles. This mighty hanging garden. Oh, look at what he's done. In fact, it is believed that it was the first air conditioning system in the entire world that he was able to rig up with the wisdom of, of his kingdom and, and all of that. The cold, wa the cold water that was flowing down, watering the vegetation and creating some sort of wind tunnel or whatever it might have been in order when you would go and sit at certain places on this mountain, there would be a cool, fresh breeze blowing from within. And so you could, his dear wife could enjoy the desert life. Meanwhile, a little mountain experience every day, nice, cool, refreshing water and air. This guy, I mean, he did it. He was amazing, amazing, amazing. And so there he is, just showing everyone, look at me, to my majesty, to my glory, look at what I've done. In our walk and in our talk, who are we giving glory to? Where ultimately does the glory go? This is super dangerous for Nebuchadnezzar. And it's dangerous for us when we start taking the glory and expecting and demanding and wanting glory for ourselves. Look at verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately, it says, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird claws. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar here? You can go and research. Go home this afternoon and research this yourself. You can find this. What happened to him was actually a very rare but documented psychological condition called boanthropy, which is where one imagines himself or herself to be a cow or a bull and acts accordingly. 
Uh, one uh, documented case in 1946 of this actually taking place, very, very similar to what took place here with King Nebuchadnezzar. There's another um, psychological condition connected to this called linkanthropy, where a person believes he or she is an animal. And I've seen some of those shows, not just on front of, you know, remember when they used to have those National Enquirers, all those really dumb um, stories and that you see at the, the supermarket checkout, you know, like, person grows a third head, you know, or something like that. Well, I mean, this, this wasn't even like one of those kind of things. I mean, now we have Facebook and, and, and all kinds of other ways to, to get all these unbelievable, untrue, fake stories. But, but, but this... Here is a documented case, and, and it's, these kind of things happen. I, I've seen other documentaries or different things where someone, literally, I watched this one, and it was just sick. This, this, this lady thought she was a cat, and the, the levels that she would go to, and, and it's a psychological condition. It, it's a legit condition. So it's an actual condition, but this case for King Nebuchadnezzar was induced by God himself on King Nebuchadnezzar. This went on for seven years. Could you imagine? The laughing stock. Look at him. Look at his hair. It's growing out all over. Like he's got hair like an eagle. He, he's, you know, just growing out. Like just the way that eagle's feathers, they go through a stage where they have nothing. And then all of a sudden, boom, they grow these feathers. And, and he grows the feather, you know, grows his hair out. His nails are long. He's eating grass. Could you imagine King Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, the laughing stock people. Where's the, where's the king? Oh, he's in the back pasture there. What's he doing? Oh, he's just chewing his cud. There he is, just, you know, just eating some grass, living like a cow, living like an ox. That's what happened to him for seven years. Verse 34, it says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the, of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselor and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He's able to humble them like that. This morning I'd like to close off this amazing story with some important truths that we can lift out of this passage very easily. There's so many truths and this would take so much time, but we're gonna just look at it at four things here. First of all, pride resides in me and you. Turn to the person you're sitting next to and say that pride resides in me and you. Come on, go ahead and do it. Turn to the next person on the other side of you. Come on, the first, the first way in overcoming a problem is admitting you have one, and we do. Pride resides in me and you. And I want to say this carefully and truthfully, but I want to say this in love. If you're here today or later on this week, you're listening to this even online. And what we're talking about here today, all this pride stuff, you figure it's, it's not for me, but I sure wish so-and-so is here. And, and you've already done that little neck, little look, you know, like, when is so-and-so's here getting this? 
Oh, good, they're here. I saw them. It's good they're here today. Or I'm going to make sure I send this link to so-and-so, and they're going to have a little listen to If that has already been going through your head, it, yeah, it might be good for others, but the truth to reality is you need this message more than they. Because pride lurks in so many different ways. You need to know pride resides in me and it resides in you. And when we're looking over our shoulder and thinking of others who need to hear this, we need to realize, hey, I need this the most. God, would you meet me? This is why I woke up this morning and I told Charlotte, I said, I don't even want to preach this. I don't want to preach today. Just not in the mood. Why? Because I don't like this. I've been having to pound through this. And, then, and I was pretty excited yesterday. And then today, it's just like, ugh, preach it. But this is the truth that we can't ignore. This is the truth that can set us free. And this is the truth that can save us from humiliating judgment and humiliating circumstances in our lives. Because when we can't see the pride in our own lives, we are in a dangerous trajectory. When we see it in others but don't see it in us, we're heading down a terrible, dangerous road. Even one similar, possibly, to King Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember, and this was probably had more importance when we lived in Alberta, uh, we lived in kind of a redneck area, and so this was right around the time that Jeff Foxworthy came out with all these different statements of, you might be a redneck if. And uh, so I was doing some sermon research and found some of these, uh, uh, you might be a redneck if, and so you might be a redneck if you consider grade five to be your senior year. Um, you might be a redneck if you consider a good tan to be the back of your neck and your left arm. You might be a redneck if beards are attracted to your, or if birds are attracted to your beard. You might be a redneck if you think a subdivision is a math equation. Or you might be a redneck if you have a toothpick um, coming out of your mouth for your wedding pictures. So anyways, in the list, I think there's like 300 different ones probably other people have come up with, with, with other ones like, you know, you mow your grass and you find three cars on your front lawn. You might be a redneck, you know. And Well, in the same way, I want to kind of change that little statement. You might have a pride problem if. You might have a pride problem or you do have a pride problem or you take it however you want. When, when we think that we're God's gift to our family, to the workplace, to this church, to our profession, to the team we play on, to the gym we work out at, and the charity that we volunteer that, you know, like if it wasn't for me, if you think like that, you've got a pride problem. Just know that God could easily immobilize any one of us at any second. The very air we breathe it's a gift from God. How dare we even allow pride for us to think that we're something more or greater than God and, and keep the glory to ourselves. Anyways, the list goes on. We have a pride problem when we look at our bodies, our looks, our hair, our possessions, our wisdom, our knowledge, even our spiritual wisdom and knowledge and go, wow, that's something. We might have a pride problem when we demand the praise, the glory of people around us to gain importance and respect. We have a pride problem when 
before we do a good deed or act of service, we think and wonder, hmm, how will this benefit me? How, what will people say about me if I do this? We might have a pride problem when praised by others, when we're praised by others, and instead of reflecting that thankfulness towards God, we hold on to some of that praise and say, yeah, I am awesome. Might have a pride problem when we are more concerned about our image or advancement than, than the condition and the souls of others. Or ultimately, not concerned about the glory of God. We have a pride problem when we know it's important to spend time in God's word and prayer, but we don't. We're basically saying, God, I've got this today. I don't need your word. I don't need your truth in my life. I pretty much already know it. Um, and, and I don't need your strength. I can go on my, my strength, my own power. We might have a pro problem with our pride when we look in the mirror and we say, I'm ugly. I'm fat. I'm a loser. I'm dumb. I'm a failure. I'm not smart. You say, how is that a pride problem? That's a self-image. No, it's a pride problem. Because in that moment, you are setting yourself up to be smarter than God. Wiser than God. God's word says in Psalm 139, go home and read Psalm 139. He says, I fearfully and I wonderfully made you. I made you the way that I made you for a reason, for a purpose, for my glory. And now you're putting it down. You're saying, God, you made a mistake. You're setting yourself up higher than God. It's a pride problem. You might have a pride problem when we hear God's word in a particular area, like forgiving others, loving our enemies, giving sacrificially to God, giving our first and best of our time, of our finances to the Lord, and we think it doesn't apply for us. We get the hall pass on, on that one. We can somehow circumvent God's word. We have a pride problem. We can have a pride problem by living in the Okanagan. Go, what? Oh, yeah. You just live a good part of your life on the prairies? And then you move to the Okanagan and all of a sudden you realize, I've got a pride problem. Because you go and you travel elsewhere and people say, hey, where do you live? And like, I live in Kelowna. Oh, I live in the Okanagan, as our GPS says. Um, and, and people go, oh, lucky. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, it's so beautiful. And you go, I know. God has placed you here. God has allowed you to come here. He could have like made the, the moving van go over a cliff on your way through the Rocky Mountains and the Rogers Pass, but he's allowed you to be here. And, and we take this pride in, in, in even in, in living in here almost like as if we had some part of being involved in the creation. Yeah, I know. It's awesome. It's beautiful. Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying where you live. But oh, would our hearts be full of praise and humility that God has allowed us to live in an area like this. But that thankfulness or that can easily be turned into pride. You might be saying, Melden, enough already. Like, yeah, I think I'm about done. But there's so many other areas where we can struggle with pride. And I have learned this lesson and I will continue to keep learning these battles with pride because it keeps lurking up all over. 
I remember one year as uh, Charlotte and I, we just moved to Alberta. We were a little solo pastorate in a little solo church and, 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 and some rough, rough times. But I remember one Sunday, like it was like, I just knew. I just knocked it out of the, like the sermon. It was awesome. Like, cause, like at least five people told me it was. And so then I knew it was awesome because I was counting like how many likes did I get? That was before Facebook and that, you know, but it's like how many people said good word, pastor? You know, and, and, and it was just like one of those. I remember we pulled up in front of our nice little white house and, and uh, I remember getting out and, and, and running up to the, the front door and I remember like I did this weird little, I won't do it now because I'm not a dancer and it looked bad then, I felt sorry for my neighbors, but it was like this eye of the tiger dance, like it was like knocked it out of the park, it just, you know, I was waiting, Charlie, you coming? You know, like I'm up there, like let's get some lunch on, you know, for this, this very, you know, pounded out pastor who's just growing and building the... And as I opened the door, there was a letter. And it was not a nice letter. And all of a sudden, it was just from pride to all of a sudden reality. That was a painful lesson then, and God continues to keep growing and testing and, and challenging me in areas of pride in my life. But here's the good news. I mean, yeah, pride resides in you and me, but here's, here's some great news. God is patient with prideful people. Love is one of the greatest attributes that we cling to when we come to God, but another one we ought to cling to just as much is his patience. He gave Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to repent, 12 months of grace to, to say, hey, you can get your house in order. This doesn't have to come. He didn't know he had 12 months, but the fact that he even had even a, a day or two was amazing on God's behalf. He gave him 12 months. He gave him a year to realize. He also had 30 years plus of Daniel around him and having this godly influence, and yet he ignored it all. And God, over and over again throughout the word, we see has amazing patience with his, with his creations, with all of us. God's word says he's not slow in keeping his promises. When he says judgment is coming, when he says, told the Israelites that captivity was coming, he meant it. He said, it's coming because this is what you're doing. And, and yet God was so slow in, he wasn't slow in keeping his promises. As we're told in 2 Peter 3.18 that he doesn't want anyone to perish. It's his grace. In Genesis 6, after he, he warned that the flood would come and flood the entire earth, entire earth, it didn't happen for 120 years. There was opportunity for revival to take place there. The prophets warned the Israelites for centuries, turn back to God, give up your idols. Otherwise, judgment will be taken in captivity. Ah, it won't happen, it won't happen to us, it happened. God used Nebuchadnezzar in that way. God gave King Saul years and years and many opportunities to repent from his prideful and arrogant ways, but he didn't. And God is so patient with you and me. The fact that we're still sucking air today shows that he is patient, that he is good. He's allowing us to hear these truths today from his word. He wants us all to come to him in repentance. He wants us to recognize this so that his glory would be restored in our lives. But eventually for Nebuchadnezzar and eventually for everyone who runs from God, he's going to say enough is enough. And he said it here. Number three, God will humble those who walk in pride. God uses Nebuchadnezzar to show us one of the most, how the most powerful, the most mighty, like who could ever, I mean, he had bodyguards, he had armies, he had walls, he had fortified palaces, he had it all. And yet God was able to reach in and turn him like that into a beast of the field. And what God did to Nebuchadnezzar, he can also do to us if he deems it necessary. 
to humble us so that he can do a, a work in our lives. There are many times that, as I've said, God has exposed my pride, my idols, my self-sufficiency. And he's brought me low before him and sometimes he's brought me low <laughs> a number of times before a lot of people. And I look back at those circumstances. Some of them have been very painful and very confusing and hurtful and humiliating. And I look back now as I see, hey, this was all part of God's plan. And I look back with thankful praise of God. Thank you. Thank you. But I keep learning these lessons from then and the lessons you have for me now. God will humble every man someday. And it's best and vitally important for eternity's sake that we're humbled while we still have opportunity to accept his grace and his mercy. For when we die, it's too late. It's too late. Do you know Jesus Christ today? Have you humbled yourself at the foot of the cross and received him as Lord and Savior of your life, repented, turning from your sin, forsaking all sin, forsaking all others, and receiving him as your Lord and Savior? Have you done that? You have opportunity to do that today. You're still breathing air. Don't put it off. And for the proud, those of us walking in areas of pride, God wants to do a new work, a fresh work in each one of our lives. It's recognizing there's nothing we can do but to receive his grace and his mercy. The great fourth truth, I encourage you to write this down. God restores and rescues the humble heart. God restores and rescues the humble. Look at in verse 34, that's so key. I lifted my eyes toward heaven. He got his eyes off himself. He got it off the grass. He got it off his looks, his circumstances, and he looked to the one, the only one who could truly save. And what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, I love that verse, my reason returned to me. His reason returned, and that's why 1 Peter 5, 6 says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at proper time he may exalt you. When we started the message, we looked at that, that universal law, that pride plus time equals judgment. Well, here's another spiritual law. Humility plus repentance equals life, real life. God preserved the kingdom for a king who is now rejoicing in the king of kings. And he's given praise, even thankfulness, as you read this, he's given praise and thankfulness for his seven years of humiliation, his seven years of going around like a cow chewing grass. He says, all his works are right and his ways are just. He's like, I deserve this. This is what I needed for this wake-up call. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And he says, take it from me, I've learned this. And see, folks, as we repent and as we turn from our pride, there is a thankfulness to God even for the humility and the humbling experiences we go through. Charles Spurgeon, this great quote, Sean gave it to me on Friday and it's just so good. He says, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. The waves that look like they're to destroy us, but we cling to God. Learn to kiss those waves and say, oh God, you are good. John Stott said, our greatest foe is pride, our greatest ally is humility. As a staff, we've been working through a book uh, week by week called Humility, 
True Greatness by C.J. Mahoney. We have copies of these available if you want to purchase one. That um, It's an incredible read. And this morning, I just want to close our time and go into communion with a few thoughts from this book. C.J. Mahoney gives some practical ways that we can daily deal with our pride and grow in humility. I don't want to leave you hanging and say, deal with your pride. Here, I'm going to give you the number one, the most important way that we can deal with our pride. And we're going to be doing that in a few moments here. And, and one of the first and foremost things, daily discipline in our lives, is God time every day. Time in the word, time in prayer. Time of recognizing our daily dependence upon the Lord. We're going to look at another one here in a few moments. And then our small groups this week. Great opportunity to join a small group this next week be a part of this to learn some other ways that we can grow and practice humility uh, and see this is a growing attribute in our lives, something that we become more and more uh, Christ-like in. Um, and, and so one of the key ways that, that we can grow in humility is by reflecting on the cross, reflecting on the wonder of the cross by filling our affections for Christ what he did for us on the cross. And when we do that, John Owens writes, there is no room for sin. There's no room for pride at the foot of the cross. You see, all of us have inflated views of ourselves until we visit the place called Calvary. It's there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. How can anyone be arrogant when he stands before the cross of Christ and truly consider what he has done for us? How he came to this earth, he left the glories of heaven, became a man, humbled himself, became a servant, went to the cross, boring the pain and the punishment, and worse than any of that, the wrath of God. He took upon himself the sins of the world, and the wrath of God for you and for me, rising in victory so that we can come to him. He takes our unrighteousness and he replaces it with his righteousness. You can't be arrogant when you stand before the cross. I'm going to ask the band to come forward in a few moments. We're going to be taking time to celebrate and remember the Lord's Supper. And this is something uh, God's word tells us to do. It's a command in scripture that we are to do. And we are to remember the love, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for our sins. And this is for believers in Christ. If you don't know Christ in a personal way, Please don't partake. If you've made a commitment to the Lord and you're floundering, you're all over the place and you don't even know where you're at, maybe even, no doubt today, areas of pride in your life, spend time confessing your sin before God. There's no more important place that you be today than at the foot of the cross, remembering the celebration of what Christ has done. There's, there's nothing more important than that, but in order to prepare yourself for that, spend time in confession. Spend time repenting of areas of pride thanking God for his son Jesus and all that he's done. Would you take time even now to do that?